The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Welcome, everybody, to Paul Rudy's On the Money. I'm Paul Rudy. I'm here with a couple of my regular guests, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, good, good to be see here. you. And certified financial planner professional, Ryan Repko, who works with me at Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning. David is listening. I told him, I said, just listen, and if I make a mistake, just text me, and I'll undo it. <laughs> You're going to get blown up with texts. <laughs> Probably. Wouldn't be the first time. You can call in with your questions, 217-356-9397, or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line, 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. And calling me. No, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding about that last part. So, Dr. Fred, I have this concern. So, and here's my concern. We now have over 100% debt to GDP. Um, at 1% interest rates, roughly, that's not a, not a big problem, really, to, to fund that. I worry about the potential when um, we can't maybe roll over the debt as easily as we could have, and then maybe there's also a lack of the ability or the fiscal space um, to borrow massively maybe when we need to in another downturn. And, and on top of that, and at, at no extra cost, it seems like the Federal Reserve is kind of backstopping and backstopping and backstopping, and I worry a little bit on that. But I could see, I can envision, and I'm an optimist, but I can envision, regardless of who's elected in November, just over the next 10 years from now, looking back, and now we have maybe 200% debt to GDP, and there comes a point, and I don't know what that point is, and I don't think anybody knows what it is, but the point of my concern is, um, what if it starts getting up there and people decide not to lend their money at 1%? They seem happy to right now, but maybe they'll start seeing the risk increasing and the ability to ever pay it down uh, increasing. And maybe they charge 4 or 5%, and now suddenly you have uh, $40 trillion of debt, you know, so twice the GDP, roughly, and then the debt service is four hundred billion uh, at one percent. But if you charge five percent, that's two trillion alone just in debt service, which would be two thirds of all federal revenues. Other than it's probably just not going to happen. Is but what is that? No, that that's the uh, clearly the concern that uh, people have. They've had it for a long time. But uh, the question is when. So I, I, I probably used this quotation before, but uh, there's a quotation from. Uh, Hemingway, who's one of the characters, went bankrupt. They said, how did you go bankrupt? And the answer was, gradually and then suddenly. <laughs> so, uh, that, that's I the, can get that. Uh, but the point is, with uh, these kinds of, uh, of financial crises for a country, uh, they don't move in it gradually like you're going down a, a gentle slope. It usually looks kind of uh, flat, and all of a sudden you go off the cliff. But I think we're a long ways away from that right now in the United States. But the, the problem is, every time we have a... a a kind of uh, fiscal emergency like this, we say, well, we, we could do it now. We'll take care of the of the uh, problems later, but we never get around to taking care of the problems. So I think it's clearly a, a, a long-term kind of problem, not even a long-term, a medium-term. Uh, the other question, which I don't think we really know about, uh, most of the 
uh, insolvencies or uh, crises or Argentina or Greece or yeah. something like that. And, and the United States is not sure. Argentina uh, is the uh, major financial operator in the whole world. So, again, that gives us more stability but also makes it more difficult for us to make sudden changes. Would it make sense to, with at epic low interest rates historically, to take most of our debt and extend it out maybe just nothing but 30-year borrowings or sure. 40 or 50? Th- that would be, uh, it'd be a good idea at least uh, give us some security. The other, the, the uh, if there is a, a bright side to inflation, if there is inflation and it comes back eventually, that actually eats away at the real value of the debt. So in the past, uh, like during the uh, – 70s and 80s, we actually were reducing our debt, not because we were paying it down, but because the inflation right. was uh, making the real value of it lower. So, uh, so again, I think it would be a good idea, certainly to a, a certain extent. And right now, you can probably get 50-year, you could issue 50 or even 100-year bonds if you wanted to. And the United States is probably one of the few places that could, could do that successfully. I just wonder out loud why they don't do that. There must yeah. be reasons. But Well, I mean, it, the question, the real question is, uh, why is no one thinking about this. I mean, the, the thing you raised is obviously a major problem, but you could probably spend uh, uh, six hours on the Internet and you wouldn't find a single politician uh, talking about the problem. Uh, we, we, despite all the uh, unpleasantness and, and lack of agreement, uh, the Republicans and Democrats have basically agreed to open up the checkbook and, and go for it now. Yeah, I, I, I can tell you that um, I'm hearing more and more clients and just investors in general not just clients it's just obsessing about this election that's coming up we've talked a little bit about it but um i i don't think in my near four decades that i've i've had people a little bit panicky about you know yeah. and, and and you can almost pick your side um if, if you're for president trump you're worried he doesn't get elected those people are worried and the people that are worried that if he does and We're there's, going also, the abyss. there's also the worry about a inconclusive outcome, but both both sides, whether you know Trump loses and he won't leave, or Trump wins and they immediately uh, question the validity of the election. So they're all kind of, even. Uh, so maybe a, a clear winner, one way or another, might be a, a first step. It doesn't appear. I mean, if you look at the polls now, I know we, there were issues with the polls, so I'm not. But still, I mean, it's there's certainly no signs of a runaway no. candidate uh, to point. But it seems to me that. If people can step back, that history shows that over long, you know, long periods of time, over one's lifetime, market performance isn't affected too much by who wins right. the election. It's really uh, related more to the economic events that roll out over time and things that infect, uh, affect the general economy overall. And it seems like the nature of a free market capitalist system is despite what politicians do to slow things down, um, great business people, men and women alike, seem to be able to innovate around it. And that just seems to be a story that there's, I can't think of any reason that that's gonna go away. Right, well again, uh, we're moving in a direction probably of of more more impediments. And again, there are places like uh, the UK and France and so on that have, they're doing all right, but they certainly uh, their innovation has been hampered by some of their their policies over the years. And there, but, there are quite a few chapters in the book ahead of us yeah. as far as uh, right. but, the race but, more race for more government intervention. But your your to bolster your uh, story, uh, if you look at the last two presidents, uh, 
no one thought Obama was going to be a great friend of business, but again, the, the, the markets during his tenure were fantastic because he started at a low point and ended at a pretty high point. And then Trump came in and every, everyone thought it was the end of the story. And the story until February 2020 right. was also one of great expansions. So now the I saw on the uh, the TV here that the uh, administration is trying to retell the story. Looking at, so the again uh, Trump was well suited to. Uh, argue about the economy up until uh, February, and now they're trying to talk about how good it was and how good it will be in the future. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think the rhetoric has just really turned up with this election more so than past elections. It's just that it, it gets people's fears going, and then it starts polarizing people and saying, well, like, if you don't believe one side or the other, you, you know, you're going to fall off the cliff like we've seen, and we fall into the abyss. It's, it's an unfortunate event, I think, that, you know, it's getting people more nervous than they probably need to be. Um, research was done. I know we talked about this in our um, our office hours video last week, where showing uh, back to I think what was it like President Calvin Coolidge? You know, from that point forward, all the way up until President Trump, was there any type of uh, bias towards Democratic or uh, Republican candidates being more favorable to the economy than others? And after a period of four years in the White House, there was no conclusive um, data showing that there is there's a pattern to be understood or to be made decisions on moving forward. And and in more cases than not, the economy grew and was positive, regardless of the uh, party that was in the White House. So for most people, they get upset about you know the short term. But if you take a step back and you look at a, a larger picture of the longer term staying invested regardless of the candidates generally what is the most important thing i've also used it as a, a t you know as a time to have that discussion with clients and saying look maybe you just have more money in the stock market than you want and or need if it's need then i'll point that out that you don't even need to have that much exposure but let's not treat it because of this the, the election per se I, let's just use that fear that you're feeling to say Am I in the right allocation for the rest of my life? So, uh, the, but you know, instantaneously almost, the thought becomes with most people is, oh, but once once what I'm afraid of goes away, or if it happens, and then once it gets better, then I'll go back to. And I've really tried yeah. to discourage that. Yeah, that kind of investment doesn't uh, work out. We've had I've had uh, investment. Uh, uh, Money managers say, "Well, what our our, theory, our our strategy is see something, uh, look at it for a while. Once it starts uh, working, then we jump in." Well, the answer is too late at that point. You, the game's already over in uh, in, the, in most cases. So, again, again, the other the other uh, kind of qualifying thing is that uh, you have to ask yourself, where do you hide if you are afraid of this? And uh, hiding in bonds may not be the the greatest thing if we have a big increase in interest rates like you. Uh, well, about well, bonds, I, I mean, of course, that's the other side of the dilemma. You know, people are saying, well, you get nothing out of bonds right now. And, you know, and yeah, you don't get anything out of an insurance for your house either. Yeah. We've talked about that. Uh, but really, as I say, the point of bonds is the same as the point of insurance, that if something bad happens, um, you'll have money to build another house in the case of the fire insurance or the home insurance. And I think that same thing applies to bonds. Um, there, you know, there, even if bonds... Right now, many of them, you take a 10-year treasury, have a negative real return. When I say real return, I mean if you really subtract current inflation and maybe any expected inflation in the future. I mean, the Fed has just recently come out 
and said, well, we have this 2% inflation target, so we know they want to you know, double the cost of living every 36 years just by target. Now they're saying, and Fred, I wonder if by them saying, you know what, we're willing to let inflation go higher, is that a little bit of panic out of the Federal Reserve? Well, I think it's uh, not panic, but I think it's that uh, they don't want to be in a position where things start to uh, move upward and they have to uh, rein things in. So they're willing to let the economy uh, maybe expand faster than normally because of the of the downturn and go above three percent inflate two percent inflation for some time. So again, I don't think they would let it go up to six or eight or ten percent, but maybe three or four for a couple of years would not be. Devastating. So you get take a four percent inflation. I'll go on your high side. I've, to a lot of people, they've never lived through that. Yeah, and I, I think that will come as right a noticeable shock. Even though inflation on a day by day basis, if you filled up a grocery cart and went in the next day and filled it up, you don't really notice it. But over time, you really yeah. tend to feel that. But I also remind people, and I think this might help some of our listeners. Sure, you buy a ten year treasury at point seven percent. Let's call it. And if inflation's 2%, you're going to lose 1.3% a year, if it works out that way, for the next 10 years. You literally signed up to end up with less money yeah. by design. And they think there's something unique about that right now. And I, I try to remind people that in the late 70s and early 80s, yeah, you might have gotten 12% in your money market fund, but inflation was 10%. And you got taxed on that 10%, right. that inflation part that you don't even get to take to the grocery store. And people tend to segment, segment this in their minds, and they just they look, they continue to just look at returns before inflation, or what we call nominal returns. And the returns that you get to spend are the ones after taxes and inflation. But just even with inflation by itself, it's not that different today than it's, than it's been. Sure, there's been periods with higher real returns and lower real returns. Uh, but as far as drawing too many conclusions from it, I don't think that's... A good idea, but we're back basically to the the world we live in all the time. There's no sure choice. You make you make uh, choices, and a choice of going into equities is you know that the long term return is probably going to be higher, and that's then the price you pay is there's uh, volatility, and, and that's exactly that what we talk about so many times, guys. Is you never eliminate risk; you just transform it. You trade, you you pick where you want it. Some people prefer to go into retirement with a hundred percent of their money in CDs, and for the first five, maybe even 10 years, they're highly, feel highly secure, but in their 80s and 90s, their chances are they're gonna feel very insecure for mo most people. Some people cho choose to be a little more insecure on the front end and they'll have half their portfolio or more in the great companies of America and the world and half the, the rest in CDs and bonds, et cetera, income producing investments. And they're trading more insecurity on the front end in hopes of less insecurity on the back end of life. And these are the yeah. these are the trade-offs, but we should always think of our returns relative to inflation. Well, I saw a uh, study by Edward Jones and Age Wave, the authors of uh, they did a, there was an article, um, and they talked about the future is fraught with economic uncertainty. Well, who knew that? <laughs> but one of the byproducts is retirement uncertainty. The just released landmark study, again done by Edward Jones and Age Wave, found that. 39% of American workers, some 68 million in all, are changing their retirement timing. Three quarters of those uh, who are rethinking the retirement timing are, you know, no surprise, planning to postpone retirement, the article goes on to say, by average of about three years. That seems like an intuitive, uh, yeah. like, which should shock nobody. But the numbers don't necessarily show that, though. The, the people are still 
retiring well, well, well below 65 in many cases and not a lot of times above 65. So even though people are, are thinking about that, maybe that's a, a, a plan to think things go poorly, I don't think it actually is manifesting itself in terms of, mm-hmm. of real-life retirement. The other thing is some people uh, get early retirement involuntarily where they end up something happening to their job and their options are fairly limited, so they choose to go into retirement rather than uh, make their way in the, in the labor market. I think one of the things was going into this, a lot of people are underfunded retirements, yeah. and COVID-19 has made it worse. Um, 20 million Americans have stopped making regular retirement savings contributions during the pandemic. Now, we could sit here and criticize that and yeah. say, well, how, how stupid. Uh, that's not what I'm suggesting. I'm saying, you know, we're not in the shoes of those 20 million people right. that just simply are trying to get by. But it's unfortunate because, you know, that's probably their key long, long term. But you got to survive now in order to survive in the long term. So yeah. another trend, which I think you've probably already ahead of the, the waiver or the, the curve, is that uh, it used to be with uh, defined contribution plans like uh, 401B K or 403B and so on. They just told you how much you had in your uh, account and it goes up and goes down. Now there's a strong movement towards asking how, how would that be converted into retirement income? So a lot of uh, plans are being forced to come up with that. And again, no one knows exactly. You have to make projections, but I think you've been doing that for years. Yeah. I mean, that's really, there's a lot of ways to get there. The, the shortcut way that you'll see a lot of defined benefit plans do it is they'll just assume that you go out and buy a life annuity. Defined contribution. Uh, yeah, yeah. A defined contribution. I, well, I don't know what I said, um, which is half the time. Um, but people in 401k plans, 403b plans, et cetera, uh, where there is this demand basically to show me what that means in terms of lifetime income. That's basically, you know, what we've discussed a lot, as you said, Fred, um, it's really what does this money mean? And for most people, it's like, what does it mean in terms of uh, three decades of lifetime retirement income? But again, there are some shortcut ways to do it. You can go out and just price uh uh, an immediate annuity yeah. and say, okay, well, if you have, you know, $100,000, you can have $6,000 a year in income for life and it's fixed and it stays that way no matter how long you live. So it's also a form of longevity insurance, but uh, there, there is, there is quite a bit of that going on. Um, and again, the important thing when you're going into retirement, people need to recognize is you're going into this rising cost of living retirement, even if it's at modest terms. Uh, go ahead. And I think it's good that, that that's kind of the way things are going for, for most people. You probably look at your account balance in your 401k or 403b, and it's, and it's this abstract number. You say, well, I have 400000 or I have 600000 whatever the number may be. And you say, that sounds like a, a huge sum of money, but is it enough? And for most people, they probably can't answer that question themselves. So trying to do a little bit of a conversion, it's never intended to be perfect, but just to be a proxy to show you know, what does that mean for me? Does that does that supplement enough of my living expenses that I've saved enough? Should I turn it up a little more? Maybe am I over saving? For some folks, that could be the case. Um, so you always try to dial it in. And I think it just is, I think it's a helpful thing for people to have more than just the total savings number. Oh, I think it's, a, I, I, I think it's an important concept. I, I think you have to take the focus on people saying, oh, I lost 10% in the market. First of all, I've always said, no, it's just a temporary decline and just trying to always substitute those words temporary uh, for that. But again, starting to think about it and like you said, 
if you just look at a bucket of money, most people don't know, can't make that calculation. Not because they're smart. They don't know what return to use, what's reasonable. And I would just say a number between 4 and 5% would be reasonable, even though there's a lot of people suggesting, well, maybe it should be 2 to 3 because interest rates are low. Well, history doesn't show that. Um, I've, I've looked at all the data. I've run my own numbers. I, I still feel comfortable using 4 to 5%. Now that includes that has to include costs, et cetera. So I mean, if you know that those, those things have an impact as well. But if you just have to pick a number, uh, four to five percent, four four and a half percent, if you want to be a little more conservative, I think is reasonable. So if you have if you're projecting you'll have a half a million dollars in there, maybe you'll have a couple thousand dollars a month of inflation adjustable income at some modest pace, and then you can start thinking about, well, okay, well, then I'll have Social Security, and that's projected between a husband and a wife maybe to be 3000 a month. Um, so I've got that. So maybe we have 5000 in spend. It allows you to kind of start fencing in, like well, re- beginning to have reasonable expectations of if I keep doing what I'm doing, what it might look like in the future. Again, as, as you said, Fred, that's something we've – Really, since I've been doing this in our company as well, is trying to breathe life into numbers in a way that people can see a clearer picture of what it means to them. Well, what if we add an extra 100 a month? What would that mean as far as how soon I could retire or how much more income? These are just the different levers that we have to consider. Some are more powerful than the others. Well, how much you add and how much time you have to save is a big one. Um, your asset allocation is a early on in a savings career. That asset allocation decision. When I say asset allocation decision, I mean how much you put in stocks, the great companies of America and the world versus income-producing investments like bonds and CDs and money markets. That's a huge one on the front end of uh, a savings career. So, yeah. and I noticed that the in this article goes on to say that the young people are more pessimistic about their future because of of retirement future because of what's going on. But um, people that are older, uh, I, th- I want to look at the, I think 60, 78% of most retirees ha- also have the security of home equity. 78% own their homes with 60% of those mortgage-free. So older Americans are seem to be a little less rattled. That makes sense. Uh, there's also the... the uh uh, problem, not problem, but the the, the opportunity of uh, compound interest. So when you start out and you save, uh, your money's not taking off and like a rocket. It's going up right. really slowly at first, and then the longer you play the game, the faster it goes up. So again, it, it's it's kind of daunting in the first few years when you're saving. You get a little bit more, a little bit more, but you're still a long ways away from your goal because your goal is going to be achieved by continued saving, but largely because of the returns that will accrue and those returns are going to be heavy at the uh, at the uh, end of the, of the career rather than the beginning. Yeah, that's something I've been working on, Fred, is looking at a retirement more like a pension fund would, whereas each year's um, needs are basically a separate liability and what it takes to fund them. And so I'm right now I'm using historical real returns, so returns after inflation, just to kind of see how much money I would, if I'm going to retire and if I need to uh, you know, ten thousand um, dollars. I'm just using simple numbers. The first year of retirement, thirty years from now, um, I calculate that if you want to be really conservative and use a number that has never been lower than that, you need to put a down payment of about nineteen cents on every dollar that you want thirty years from now. But if you're saying, "Look, I'm willing to be ninety percent sure," now it may fall to uh, 
10 or 11 cents on the dollar for so it i'm trying to figure out a way psychologically to get the people to they can close that gap much quicker and make quicker calculations yeah. and decisions probably doesn't sound like it though does it <laughs> yeah there's a tough uh, there's a a story in the news recently about that is the old story, but uh, Warren Buff is talking about how much your cup of coffee costs you now versus uh, 20 years now. But in his case, he could very well have afforded a few more cups of coffee when he was younger. So it can go either way. Yeah, and my most conservative, like I said, if you if you use the worst return we've ever experienced over a 30-year period, a dollar would be worth $5.6. And real inflation adjusted, like real yeah. purchasing power term. So really that dollar cup of coffee is costing you you know 5.6 dollars 30 your 30 year from now person yes. just paid in in, in action not in like i said they say well yeah but five dollars you know no i'm talking about in real terms just like it is today like what 5.6 dollars five dollars and 60 cents would be worth um i think if we can and i'm considering creating an app that says buy this not that and to try to quickly connect those dots and now that i think i've created these data tables i can i can quickly do that you know and and also increase talk about well how sure do you want to be 80 percent 85 90 100 everybody has a different mentality when it comes to how much risk or their chances of not if i need a dollar 30 years from now what are my chances i'll only have 90 cents or 80 cents everybody's sensitivities are different um, that can work for you at the same time if you're willing to be a little more flexible than that the, the journey is a little easier because you have to put down, you have to put less money in today. Yeah, it certainly works for the folks who have a little bit of discipline, you know. If you <laughs> but that leaves about 90% of human nature, humankind out. Yeah, I would say for, for the folks that like the, uh, you know, I don't know, I don't use this term often, but like the treat yourself mentality of constantly like it's about, you know, it's about the now and it's about taking care of yourself now. It's like, yeah, that works for a while until it doesn't. Um, you know, there's a healthy balance between the two. But anyway. Yeah, so suppose you go out and you buy a $50,000 automobile today. I would say, well, first of all, that might be an IQ test. But second of all, you know, it's not really 50000 It's more than $250,000 in real terms in opportunity costs of money you could have 30 years from now. Mm -hmm. So in other words, well, maybe I buy a $25,000 car instead. So maybe it can change those decisions. Yep. I noticed that uh, in this article, I, I guess it didn't surprise me, um, the labor force participa participation rate of Americans age 65 and older has risen to 20%, higher than we've seen in 50 years. 40% of workers 65 or older had stopped working for a while and then unretired. I think that's probably, I don't know, maybe less to do with finances than yeah. just keeping busy and active. And uh, In fact, I just watched a great show on Netflix, and then I'll get back to finance. Um, it's called Chef's Table on Netflix. And yeah. the first one was about Toot, lady named Tootsie, 85 year old, still working at it. She's the pit master. Her husband <laughs> died, her son died, and she just wanted. So she's a custodian. Anyway, wonderful show. But just, I got to thinking, you know, wow, at 85, look at her. And you'd wonder if she isn't, you know, sort of physically healthy and all that just because she kept going. Right. Mm -hmm. Can't draw too many conclusions from it, but. It, Right. Kind of made me wonder, you know, if staying active, like Dr. Fred, even though he's yeah. not 85 yeah. or anywhere near it, but right. Fred's uh, my hero. That's what I want to be. Technology definitely has played, I think, a big role in that. I mean, I know some older clients who drive for Uber. They're retired, but I mean, it gives 
it gives them the ability to produce income while staying active and engaging with people. So it it's something that didn't exist, you know, well, mainstream anyway, five years ago. It existed, but it wasn't something that just anybody would do, let alone maybe a 70, 80-year-old person driving around an Uber car. Um, so I think that has the ability to just turn on and off the amount of income you choose rather than having to sign up for a job and be committed to a time. And it just gives flexibility for folks who want to maybe a little extra supplemental income. There's so a, I, yeah, go ahead, Fred. There's a, a study about these are uh, people who are applying for disability and they're not uh, people who are not totally disabled to have some kind of impediment. And there's kind of a divine line between disabled and not being disabled. And people on the divine line, when they uh, are, are uh, evaluated, half go one way, half go the others, are basically the same, but the kind of randomness. And the, actually, the people who are denied disability, uh, you look f- uh, five or 10 years in the future, they're happier than the people who grabbed a hold of disability, huh. which is sort of the, uh, the, the goal of these people. So the fact that they, they were forced into the uh, cruel world actually probably worked to their benefit over the long run. I, yeah, intuitively, that makes sense to me. I mean, I, I could see that and just from being 60 and watching people retire at 60 and live to into their 90s. I've got to witness that over and over again. It's It's been an interesting study, and that yeah. kind of checks well. I've always said getting back to Uber. I would love to drive Uber. I, yeah. I would do it for sure. I like to just talk to people, and I'm naturally <laughs> curious. So I threatened my wife one time. I said, I'm going to, <laughs> I'm going to do it just for fun. I don't need the money. Uh, maybe I would just donate the money to charity or something but she said how would it look if you got into an uber and here's your financial advisor (laughs) driving your uber i go yeah you're probably right probably should do it in my own town yeah it works for younger advisors as you're building up clientele and you don't have the the stigma so much i think i know uh your son paul jr was living down in texas and some young financial advisor was doing just that it was his his way of building up a client base or a contact list was driving for uber so kind of funny I read an article, and we've talked a little bit about this, because I think what's amazed people is if you look at the handful of high-tech stocks, how they've just, well, other than the last few days, uh, that seems to be, uh, at least in the meantime, working the other way. But it's kind of like, unless you were in the largest growth stocks, you just weren't making the returns everybody was talking about. And how that it's been magnified, particularly since 2018. And uh, we've seen this before. but I think it has more to do with, and when I look at, you know, when I look at the data, it's really kind of the difference between speculating in the most expensive and least profitable companies versus the cheapest, more profitable companies, which I would probably call the Warren Buffett strategy. Yeah. They've just diverged in a way that's hardly been seen. You have to go back to the end of the late '90s before that. Um, yeah, this is but different. I got to believe that Fred that over time and Ryan, uh, at least over one's lifetime, valuations and profitability matter. Yeah. So this time, I think the uh, the, the tech uh, uh, upturn was more <clears throat> in the well-known stocks, and in the, in the '90s, people were betting on almost anything that had a high-tech uh, label attached to it. So so it shows. True. Sure, that was dot-com crazy. Too. But neither way is. Uh, is a sure thing. It's just like uh, the, the old idea about choose a uh, a really good company that's doing well and is well run and so on. And you can you can't go wrong. Well, you can't go wrong, but you're probably not going to uh, make a huge gain there either because everyone else knows that uh, that. So these are are situations that uh, you probably can't avoid. And, and again, if you're playing the game of choosing the highest uh, recent returns, this is always going to happen. I read an article, I think it might have been by Mark Trout, no, Mark Troutner out in California who wrote an article, I just can't remember the name of it, but 
I remember seeing it. He took looked back further and said, "Let's have a little longer term perspective." And he has what's called the Buffett portfolio and the Robin Hood portfolio, which is the you know big lot of the lot of companies that are not that profitable and and very expensive versus the ones that are uh, you know less less ex, you know cheaper and more profitable. And he backed up to 1963 through June of 2020. He said the month of least profitable portfolio is worth $993. I don't know what it started at, um, but just the point was, oh, growth of $100. So it went up nine times, but the growth of $100 for the cheapest, most profitable companies, 131130 almost 12 times, or I guess 12 times or so higher. But this is really messing with people's minds right now. I mean, there's just, because it's, it's because these largest companies, many that aren't that profitable, because they're basically have had returns, you know, 200% of their normal historical return, um, makes you wonder how that ends. I think I know how it ends ultimately, and I think the last few days shows you how that strategy can quickly unravel by itself. If you just look at the NASDAQ, the QQQ, the NASDAQ 100 largest stocks in the NASDAQ index, let alone some of the big high flyers like Tesla that's fallen 15% just yeah. today, I think, earlier today. I mean, it's had a monstrous run-up. I don't want to ignore that, but it just shows you how quickly that unravels when, you yeah, buy, they, when, uh, you, when your valuation matters. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal had a interesting, uh, huge chart about the Dow Jones over the uh, history of the Dow Jones about uh, Dow Jones is not a fixed uh, group of stocks. It comes, uh, stocks leave and uh, stocks come in, so... You go back, some of the biggest ones, uh, General Electric, GM, Exxon, are nowhere near the uh, the top of the heap anymore. So, again, it's, it's, that's the way the world works. Yeah. I was uh, I, look, I read the other day where Apple by itself, the company Apple, has a market valuation. In other words, you take all their shares times the sh- current share price, larger than the Russell 2000 itself. And the Russell 2000 is the 2,000 small companies yeah. of publicly traded small companies. You get to the Russell 2000, basically, just quickly. You rank all companies by size. You throw out the top 1,000. The next two, second and the third 1,000 yeah. are what they consider small companies. And one company is larger than all the small companies yeah. in that index in the United States. I don't know what that means. Presumably, though, Apple was in that uh, 2000 sure it was. at some point. So. Uh, it most certainly was. I mean, yeah. that's, I guess that is the story. That's why I like diversification, because... I don't know what the next Apple is, yeah. but it's in our DFA microcap portfolio. Um, but, you know, it just gets – this all circles back. The way I'm seeing people behave and the questions I'm getting to the biggest mistake that I think investors make is they tend to believe that when it comes to judging performance of an investment strategy, to most people, three years is a long time, five years is a very long time, and ten years is an eternity – and I think that belief ultimately gets them to ignore the long-term evidence and, right. and to completely go astray of the long-term evidence. Um, that's probably been the biggest pro- – in my 36 years, if I had to say what's the one thing that really caused most people to be failed investors, it's because of that one issue. Looking at three or five or ten years of data and drawing too many conclusions and not stepping back and saying, well, how does that fit? And, and and again, there's no facts about the future, and maybe it is different this time. Yeah. Um, but generally, it's not. Yeah, and I think what's really so hard for for just about everybody is the fact that ten years may be like a quarter of your entire working career for some people, um, some less, some more. 
But to think that you have 10 years with a significant lag, or even like we look at the last decade from 2000 then to 2009, where the S&P 500 returned a negative 9% over a 10-year period, for people to look at that and say, how could I not make a change? I need this for my retirement. You can't blame them. You can, you can hardly fault anybody for feeling the way that they do. But absent, like you say, historical perspective and, and taking a, a step back and zooming the microscope out a bit and saying, let's not look at the last 10 years, but let's look at the last 40 or 50. What is the overall story tell and what's the trend line? The trend line is being, you know, being globally diversified, or in this case with this study, owning the, the value stocks rather than growth stocks, uh, at least as history, if history's any guide, is the way to go. Um, at placing best to some degree. Short, yeah. yeah, and again, uh, people I haven't had to go through the, long, the long-term kind of problem, but uh, my investment began in, in 68 and 68 to 82. So was, you remember the Nifty 50. But nothing happened for, for 14 years. <laughs> yeah, the Dow went from 1,000 to 1,000. Yeah. And, and, you know, the Treasury bills outperform the stock market. Now, how most people would draw a conclusion, and many did, you can go back and you can yeah. look it up, as they say. Um, the most famous was the Newsweek headlines at the death of equities. Yeah, you go 17, 14, 15, 16 years where simple treasury bills outperform stocks, and guess what? Stocks were really cheap by the summer of 1982 when the Dow was at 777 for the last time. Um, and it just, it's this, this seems like every 10 or 20 years, we forget that every 20, 20, 10 yeah. or 20 years, there's some changes that convince us that the world is, is different and it never is. And I can't help but to think that, you know, you could take a company like Apple and is trading at about 40 times earnings. Um, not too long ago, it was at 20 times earnings. And it would probably be reasonable to assume that 10 years from now, it may be back to from a multiple, you know, it'd still be on the high side, but 20 times earnings. And if you ask yourself, well, if just to earn a 10% return, what do earnings have to grow by? They would have to grow by much more than they've been growing by over the last five or 10 years. Uh, just to get a 10% return. It's, it, it's nothing to say about what's going to happen to Apple. I'm talking about the valuations matter. I did these same calculations at the end of 1999, particularly with companies. 10% of the companies on the New York Stock Exchange were trading at 100 times earnings. In 1982, you could have bought blue chip companies for seven and eight times earnings, just put some perspective behind it. And when you do the calculation that if I pay 100 times earnings, what has to happen to earnings? It's basically something that I can't say has never happened, but the probabilities of having the earnings that are required just to make a 0% return aren't all that favorable. Yeah. And we learned that lesson. Investors learned that lesson after the late 90s. You're going to make us active managers. <laughs> well, that's the key, Fred. You just have to know the right stock. So yeah. I wrote that article in the newspaper. Kind of, you're right. And that's and, and amazing how many times you and I read and Ryan, we read that, well, the answer to all this is then just don't use index funds. Pick the right funds or pick the right timing. So in the News Gazette, uh, in, in my column, I wrote, who's going to bell the cat? And it's yeah. a fable about all the mice that get together and say, hey, we really have a problem with this pesky cat that's making our lives miserable and killing some of us. Mm. So we think it's a good idea as a group. Someone needs to bell the cat. Yeah. So if we put a bell around the cat's neck, we'll know when the bell, <laughs> when the yeah. cat's around us and we'll all live a much better life. And nobody stepped up to sure. volunteer to put the bell on the around yeah. the cat's neck because they knew that was certain death. That's, that's kind of when it 
circles back to always as well. You just have to pick the right stocks or the pick the right time to be in the right stocks. There's all kinds of machination that's like, yeah, great idea. How do you implement it? And we have at least five decades, if not six decades, that show that it's impossible to bell that cat. I mean, it's a great idea, but other than it doesn't work um, it, consistently enough, does that mean some people are going to do better? Of course. You could flip a coin 1,032 times, I think, and I would expect one person to flip yeah. heads 10 times in a row, right? doesn't mean their skill was right. So I follow this guy I have for, oh, maybe 25 years, Bill Schmidt. He's a Ph.D. out of Columbia University, kind of an interesting fella. Um, I just look at, just kind of monitor what he's writing. I get his newsletter. But today he wrote, the Dow Jones Industrial Average rises only 37.5% of the time in presidential election years in the month following September 7th. Now, there's some specificity. Mm -hmm. And always since 1892, when a Democrat replaces a Republican in the White House, the market falls in the autumn. Well, I don't know what to make of it, but it does show from a tendency standpoint what we're seeing in the stock market right now is kind of fits that theme. Of course, that's convenient. Uh, AFL versus NFL predictions. I can't remember what, what, what it was. Right. Or, or, which, uh, uh, Depending on who won it, that's, yeah. that's, as that goes, that's the stock market's either going to be good or yeah. bad. I see the Dow's down about 530 points. So, see, maybe we're seeing some of this autumn correction. Certainly, I can honestly say, though, when I think back of all the September and October declines that I've had in my career, yeah. something about them seems like September, until you go back and you look and right. you realize, okay, you're just remembering the bad ones. But September's and October seem to give investors fits. There's also, I can't remember the, the rhyme, but uh, you, know, you, you go away in summer and come back in fall. Though, yeah, selling May, well, selling May, go away and if, if buy back. If you gone away this summer, you would uh, not yeah. <laughs> done well. Is that what, what was it, selling May and... Basically, it was saying sell in May and come back at the end of the summer. And yeah. Something it didn't say Labor Day. But if only it was that simple as just a rhyme to, yeah. to produce returns, you know? Right. Yeah, and as if, you know, you probably somebody looked at the data and said, well, a certain number of times that would have been a great strategy. Yeah. Well, that's fine, but it could be purely random, right. as random as a coin flip. And so I try not to draw too many conclusions from that. Um, we do have a topic about and I'll be interested to see what you guys think about this in the last uh, seven or eight minutes. Uh, teaching children about money, um, about how it's important not just to explain money principles, to show them. In other words, you know, you could probably get a kid to read a textbook at five years old, but he's not going to do it. One concept, and I thought this was a good one, and I'll probably do that with my grandkids, your kids, Ryan, is it says if you're, because I give them coins all the time, you know, we just collect coins, which probably now are more valuable. It gives you 5% premium if you go to, I think, CIB, Marine, for every $100, I think they give you. I could be wrong on that. But it's interesting, this coin shortage. But anyway, when you use a clear jar, they see the money growing as opposed to being, hey, I don't even know what's really in there. I thought that was pretty good. Um, Help them grab a few dollars out of the jar, take it with them to the store, and physically hand money to the cashier. I guess that's if they want a certain $5 toy. Right. Make them feel like that exchange is real, and all of a sudden there's that $5 less in that clear piggy bank. Mm-hmm. Um, show opportunity cost. I thought this was a good one. If you, buy, if you buy this video game, then you won't have money to buy a pair of shoes. So maybe by the middle elementary and middle schoolers, they maybe 
can develop that opportunity cost. Like, hey, what am what am I not? What's the unseen from doing this purchase? Um, kind of what we were talking about earlier. What's spending this dollar or Starbucks? I always felt like it should be called five bucks or maybe seven <laughs> bucks. Uh, you know, what's the real cost in those terms? Yeah. Um, I, I think just starting these kinds of habits early is is really helpful because. Research has come out, and there's an interesting book uh, called Mind Over Money. It's called it's about overcoming our money disorders. Um, so much of this is what we learn from a very early age, whether we think we're learning it or we're observing it, and we internalize this this way of viewing money and spending. Ryan, I'm working on those words I'm not supposed to say around your children. Uh oh. Oh, well, that's not what you're talking. Three about. or four letter word. I don't know. I think poop. I think I said poop. Yeah, you're not allowed to say that day. one, according to my four-year-old. <laughs> I got the lecture. Yep. Uh, but the whole point of this this book is saying that listen, what we what we do as adults with money, the way we spend, the way we save, the way we interact or we think about money is really heavily dependent on what we observe growing up, mostly from parents or whoever we're around. So for uh, a child who maybe doesn't, you know, have access to maybe a small piggy bank and has the ability to pay $2 for a candy or something, um, you know, I think this research is showing, hey, this could give them a good opportunity to understand a little more of the economy and the marketing of things. So I don't know. I, I like it. I read it and I thought, gosh, I'm not doing this very well as a, as a young dad. Maybe I need to start upping up my game a little bit for him. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I think that one of the other ideas was, you know, pay an exorbitant rate of interest to your children. You know, so. I can give the... Uh the bad way to do it, uh, it was, I, I uh, had this uh, uh, done to me when I was in high school. You, let's learn about the stock market. You all <laughs> get the Wall Street Journal or, and right. pick a stock, and the one that gets the stock that uh, picks the stock that goes up the most is the is the winner. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a way to learn about the stock market, which is obviously uh, yeah. I you know I, <clears throat> in fact I think my sons David and Paul, I think uh, Daniel ahead, won or Daniel. I think he won too at the high school level. I think, yeah. So anyway, they used to have those contests, and I told them, just absolutely swing for the fence. Yeah, sure. And they did. Now, what kind of an investment strategy is that? It's a horrible investment strategy, <laughs> but they walked away with it by a pretty good margin. Yeah. Now, it's pure random luck. Well, if things you're not going to do it by picking, uh, you know, GE. But if they had, uh, if the world had been different, they would have been way at the bottom. So either right. being in the middle doesn't get you anything, but uh, being at the, at the top is is uh, great being at the bottom, no big deal. It's, it's all no cost. play money. <laughs> yeah. So here's how I think you're right, Ryan, about we develop our feelings about money and our habits about money at a, at a very young age. So the, that article that we read uh, said seven is when most kids have learned much of what they're going to learn about money. My dad, who just managed a clothing store, you know, probably never made much, you know, raised five kids. I don't know how he did it, he and my mother. But they did. And... He, but he always had this hang up that if some he heard that, oh, yeah, so and so is really rich. And, yeah, but you know, my dad had this feeling that if you were rich, you had to be somehow crooked. <laughs> there was nothing legitimate about it. Uh, you know, just and I never could figure that. And I remember he was born in 1916, so if that helps, so obviously he not only grew up in the shadows of the depression, he grew up in the midst of the depression. But he always had that attitude. And then one day he told me about how his dad finally got a car, much later than everybody else. I think his dad was a painter. And I take it must have been sort of a jalopy. Fred, you raised your hand. No, oh. oh, Anyway, and he said his dad used to take them, the family out and go for Sunday rides. I guess that's where this came from, these Sunday afternoon rides. You know, the people I yell at. 
Well, I really don't. Well, I do if my windows are rolled up. But anyway, he said his dad used to always say when the Packards, I guess the Packard must have been like the car of the wealthy class. He said every time a Packard would go by, his dad would say, there goes a crook. There goes a crook. There goes a crook. And I said, how old were you then? He said, I don't know, probably five or six years old. And I said, ah, finally I could connect the dots. And that, that has always suggested to me, anecdotally, obviously, that maybe we do form our money habits at a young age, and maybe we need to spend more time with our utes, as they call them, and doing that. Any other things on that? Uh, yeah, teach. Oh, I know, here's one I highlighted, though. Teach your kids that savings equals freedom. Now, I thought that was out of the whole article, and I can't uh, What's do we have the name of the article? We probably should. Talk How to teach it. preschoolers and kindergartners about, about money. money. And uh, I can't cite the author. Maybe it's at the bottom. Doesn't matter. You could, you could Google that. How to teach preschoolers and kindergartners about money. <clears throat> Think of the power of that one statement. Teach your kids. I would probably say children because my mom said kids are billy goats. Teach your kids that savings equals freedom. How, how does that strike you, Fred? Uh, uh, great. I, I think it's it's true. Is there reality uh, again, money, that? money can't uh, deal with disease and things like that. It can deal with a lot of things. And again, uh, if you're worried about the next election, uh, you're probably less worried about it if you if you have a comfortable kind of uh, fortress. Yeah. Based on again, it's, it sounds crass, but uh, having uh, having uh, the ability to deal with the, the world is is a good thing, and uh, money is one part of that. Yeah. yeah, I think it, it strikes me from 60 years of life that 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 savings equals freedom. It's yeah. not really money equals freedom. It's kind of you could draw that conclusion, but without the savings, you don't get the money. So it's really I kind of like I'm, I normally would have said money equals freedom, but I think it's more powerful to say savings equals freedom. Yeah. And I think the intermediary there would be savings equals choices, and choices maybe equals freedom. And you don't you're not quite put up against the wall during a bad time and you have the ability to maybe be a little calmer during other times because you have a little more of a cushion. So I think we've learned this year, we've learned a lot of things, but one is maybe our safety net, our emergency reserves, maybe need to be a little larger than our textbook thinking of three to six months, right. uh, especially depending on, if you work for the government, I guess you don't even okay. have to have one, Fred. But if you work in the private sector, I'm just kidding. I don't need any emails yelling at me over that one. Um, but I, I think if it's taught us as one to, to expect the unexpected and it's not hard to envision any longer being furloughed for a year or yeah. even two years. In a, and if that's going on and it's not specific to just your industry, it's a macroeconomic yeah. crisis, it's probably going to be really hard to get a job yeah. in the face of all and that. And there may not be the $600 a month next time either. So, uh, again, you can't, you can't depend upon the government to step in the way they did this time. No, because if that cured all of your issues, you probably need to save 600 a month for at least right. a year right. and have $7,200, you know, would be, uh, uh, you know, so it, it, there's people need to take, oh, there's some real takeaways and I think people should do it and they should bother doing it. And one is expect the unexpected and have a much larger, in case of emergency, break glass uh, bucket. And I've even learned it's, it's had an impact on me. It's even changed my thinking about some things as well. Well, guys, that's it. I was probably boring today, but hey, well, this is what you get today. That's how I woke up, boring. Anyway, thanks, Dr. Fred Gertz. Thanks, Ryan Repko. This is Paul Rudy's On the Money. Thanks for listening. Back in two weeks. 
Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.